Welcome to the official SPGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. Hi, everybody. It's good afternoon, and today I'm chatting with participants in the first SPGAN interviewee double act, Professor Mark Beninga of the Netherlands and his doctoral candidate, Clara de Bruyne. They are here to tell us about their presentation of research results made in May of 2023 at the Espigan Annual Meeting. I found what they had to say fascinating, but I'm getting in their way, so I'll let them tell me about it. What did you want the people who weren't fortunate enough to attend your presentation who are listening now at home in their car, to learn from what you had to say. Clara, you did the work. Um, sorry there, Mark. But Clara, you did the work. It's over to you. Well, I think then we can start with the conclusion, what we tell the, told the people as well, which is that the, the FMT seemed to be a promising treatment strategy for um, adolescent IBS patients. What was that first word? It was sounded like an abbreviation. Fecal microbiota transplantation. And you are we going to be referring to that by FMBT? F what was the okay. FMT. 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 Got it. Microbial transplantation. Mm-hmm. Yes. That seems to be promising. Yes. In it seems the treatment a promising of? treatment strategy. Go for it. So we did a trial where we assessed the efficacy of FMT in adolescents with refractory irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. So we've got it. FBT and IBS, and I don't know how many more abbreviations we're going to have here, Clara, but we'll work our way through them. How many patients did you have in your treatment, and was there a separate control group, or was it a set set of historical controls? But Alex, before you ask these very difficult questions, I'd like to add something, because I don't know if all the listeners know exactly what irritable bowel syndrome is. You talk to them about it. Of course it, they know. It's con- that was about constipation, but irritable bowel syndrome uh, is a phenomenon, very common in children, but also in adolescents. Uh, and these people suffer of abdominal pain uh, and so uh, intense that it um, interferes with their daily activities, with school, with their work. Um, and the treatments we uh, use now are good, but not so good. Uh, and that's why we started this particular trial using uh, fecal material, uh, including microbiome, to treat these resistant uh, patients. I think that that's valuable information, but even more valuable information would be what led you to the leap of imagination that said, if we change the poop, if we change the composition of the chyme, that we're going to do anything for these kids. Well, the exact pathophysiology of IBS is not completely understood, but it's thought that it's a complex interplay of different factors, such as psychosocial, genetic, physiological factors. And over the years, evidence is growing for the role of the gut microbiota in the pathogenesis of IBS. So a few studies have proven already that the microbiota from IBS patients, as well as adults, as pediatric patients, differ compared to healthy controls. And in this light, 
being able to modify the gut microbiota may have beneficial effects on the symptoms. Give me an anecdote or two. Tell me about kids who have found that their IBS improves after antibiotic treatment. Wouldn't that alter the microbiota? Wouldn't that maybe purge the bad bugs and let good bugs come in? Well, that's a, it's a nice uh, thought. Uh, so there are some studies uh, looking at the effect of uh, rifaximin, which is a certain antibiotic. We don't use it in, in the Netherlands. Um, and it's only it was only successful in the minority of patients. But, you know, the question you ask is very difficult, but also very well taken because we do not exactly know what the microbiome looks like in IBS children with constipation or IBS with diarrhea. So this first trial is not looking specifically at certain uh, strains, but it's moreover that we look at the effect of a healthy donor um, in children or adolescents with uh, irritable bowel syndrome and see what it does. And hopefully, Clara will find out if there are specific strains which are responsible for the success. There's a recent paper in Nature, I believe, that talks about the use of pH-controlled capsule sampling of chyme. And ah, uh, Clara's raising her eyebrows and nodding. She knows this paper. Tell us more about it. Well, it's a paper about the sampling of the uh, stool in which they demonstrated that they can really uh, assess the microbiome very accurate. So maybe in future it would be beneficial to use those capsules also in studies we will perform in future. But for now, we just collected fresh morning stool samples. See, I was thinking that you could use those capsules in order to sample, say, at the ligament of trites, or halfway down toward the ileocecal valve, or after transition into the colon, and say, aha, this is different from what we're seeing in what, may, what we might call terminal stool, that in the rectal ampulla. But, but that's all music for the future. Yes. Okay. Right. So how many kids did you treat with fecal transplants? 32 patients. 30, and were your control, these were all kids whose symptoms, whose manifestations of disease had been refractory to the treatments, the attempts at therapy that, Mark, you mentioned? Yeah. So these patients were all from my outpatient clinic, and I think well, probably 100% of them uh, really came to tertiary care. So these were the children and adolescents who uh, failed on diets, on painkillers, on acid blockers, uh, on everything. I, I even went out with the mothers to cure their children and nothing helped. And they also had like uh, psychological therapy, but also hypnotherapy and they failed as well. So these were the most resistant patients I had in my outpatient clinic. Um, and most of them um, liked the idea to have this new treatment. Well, I'm sure you were able to propose. It sounds like cervical spine surgery. You wait until the patient is so miserable that she will do anything in order to get away from this, and then you say, okay, now we'll operate. You had patients who were so miserable and whose families were so miserable that any intervention would have been welcome, particularly one that already showed, as you mentioned, some signs of successful intervention, right? All right. 
How did you go about them? Did you, did you give them a bowel purge? Did you cleanse their bowel? Did you eliminate their native flora before you started to infuse other person's flora? Yes, yes. So the procedure started with the positioning of the nasoduodenal tube. Uh, and then through this tube, the bowel lavage was performed. Oh, my God. I'm sorry about that. Uh, oh, dear me. Uh, you put them onto a toilet and then just flushed them clean through? Mercy. Okay. We are gastroenterologists. You don't care. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, what a surprise it must have been for those adolescents. Um, and then, and then you said, Mark, Clara, let the games begin. Exactly. What did you now put down that duodenal tube? Well, then first in the morning, actually, it starts with the collection of the fresh morning stool sample. So both the donor and the patient needed to collect the fresh morning stool sample and deliver it in a plastic container through the research assistant. And the research assistant then made sure this stool was not traceable to the donor or to the patient. And she delivered the blinded stool to the laboratory. Okay. It's in the laboratory. What happens now? Yeah, and then in the laboratory on a fume hood. So it's more like a... a a closet, actually, where you put your hands in, so the window goes down, your hands are in the closet, and then you can see what you do, but you, you don't smell it. Um, and, then, advance, okay. and then you weight the stool. Uh -huh. And then, depending on the production, you add saline, uh -huh. approximately 300 to 400 cc. Now comes the blenderizing. Then you get two sticks. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. You use sticks. And then you uh, make a suspension, and then you uh, pour this suspension through to double gauze to remove debris until 200 cc is fully homogenized. It's a pity that the listeners can't see the face of Alex now. It is. Um, no pictures, please. <laughs> oh, 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 right. 200 cc's of chocolate milkshake. Yes. Okay. And does this go into the duodenum? Now, I find that interesting. Already you're saying this is a duodenum. This is a small and large intestine-based process. How much of that bug cocktail is going to make its way down and through into the large bowel? What happens, what do you then, what do you then find that the patient is later evacuating? Is it all of the bugs that went in, or is it only selected of bugs that went in? Were some of them strained out, not by your gauze, but by the environment of the small bowel? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. And the answer is not yet there, because the analysis are still running. Uh -huh. So we are trying to identify the distinct taxa, but we are not there yet. So maybe next time we can answer this question. Because there's a leap of faith there again. There's the idea that whatever there is in the large bowel, will include small bowel bugs that have made their way all the way down to terminal stool. And it might be that there's a different, a separate population of enterobiome constituents in the small bowel that is not represented in terminal stool. Nonetheless, you're taking terminal stool, whether or not it's a complete um, mapping of the original patient's entire enterobiome, 
and you're putting it into the duodenal tube. And you're taking the patient away from the toilet and saying, you can go lie down now. <laughs> How long does it take for him or her to feel better and to say, I'm feeling better? Well, uh, what we already know from the analysis is that we see the uh, composition of the microbiota changing after six weeks. So Six weeks. It takes that long to, it takes that long to repopulate. Even in a cleansed stool. Well, we took uh, samples at six weeks, and that we analyzed. So uh -huh. Uh -huh. we only demonstrated it at six weeks. As it well. might have been earlier. It might have been earlier. Yes. Does this? Does the once the cleansing is over, how long does it take for a bowel pattern that we would recognize as usual to resume, or to begin? This patient might have had diarrhea, might have been constipated beforehand. Yeah. And if there is a normal stool pattern, then you'll know what it is, or a putatively normal stool pattern. How long does it take after the purge for that to resume? Well, in our population, it was quite diverse, but uh, most of the patients experienced the first few days after the transplantation just uh, mild adverse events like uh, abdominal cramp, little nausea, little diarrhea. Uh, and then by the time, mostly around the w one week, patients really experienced changes. So one patient, for example, was um, someone who mostly went to the toilet in the evening. And then after the transplantation, she became a morning person. Okay. I didn't know that the enterobiome secreted melatonin, but here we are. So that was quite an interesting observation. Uh, and the... How did you gauge improvement? How did you gauge your, how did you assess the results to see if they represented an advance? What scales and what measuring modalities did you use? So we used different questionnaires, but um, to uh, score the abdominal pain symptoms, we used the IBS severity scoring system, which is a validated questionnaire for uh, patients with irritable bowel syndrome. Um, and secondary outcomes were adequate relief of abdominal pain symptoms. So we just asked the patient, do you feel relief of abdominal pain symptoms? And then they can answer yes or no. Um, and we also assessed health-related quality of life using uh, the IBS quality of life questionnaire. Uh, we also looked at anxiety and depression. Did in any of these patients, you transplant them with their own stool samples to rule out a placebo effect of the doctors have done so much for me, I must feel better now? Yes. So that's a very good point. Half of the patients received the donor stool and the other half of the patient received their own stool. And you're telling us that there was a difference between A and B? Yes. So in the end... Our results showed that the patients receiving the donor stool uh, significantly improved. We've got a p-value here. Yes. So okay. at 24 weeks follow-up, 60% of patients responded after donor FMT compared to 25% of patients in the placebo group with a p-value of 0.048. Whoa. Well, you just came in under 0.05, so congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I only say that because I'm so tired of reading articles in which 
significantly is used to mean substantially or quite a lot. But you've done it. Now what? Well, that's a, that's a very difficult question because as uh, Klaartje says, uh, we are analyzing the microbiome and of course we are hoping that we will find certain strains which might be responsible for the, the success. Uh, and there are many factors which are difficult to understand. So one of them is the, the success rate is especially after 24 weeks. Uh, but the other thing is which donor should we use? Where should we put the fecal material in the next trial? Uh, in the AMC, we are working really hard uh, together with the um, adult gastroenterologists to work on pills because, as you can imagine, um, a duodenal tube is very invasive uh, and very difficult to perform. Um, but we, I don't, I, I don't know if we are there yet. But it would be really nice if we can come up with a certain microbiome which uh, is able to, uh, well, make a, make a difference in these in these patients. And do, of course, a very large randomized controlled trials with pills uh, to show that it's indeed effective. I did forget to ask that question, and that is, how many donors did you have, and were you using the same stool for all of these patients as donor stool? Yeah. So we uh, used stool of 11 different donors to perform all FMTs, but because we were blinded, we didn't know if all the stool was used as well for the um, transplantation. So in the end, only eight donors were used for the um, transplantations of the donor group. Which is to say that those eight donors might have contributed being different persons, having different guts, different fecal strains. And so what we see in our results is that the response is also associated with the allocated donor. Some people have good poop and some people have less good poop? Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. But, or you can say good poop or bad poop, but or it's the compatibility of donor and patient. So it's not about the the perfect poop of the donor, but it's more the match with the patient and the donor. I take your point. And how are you going to sort that out? How are you going to decide which strains are better? Uh, that's a very good question, and that's that's Mark's job. That's Mark's job to answer. <laughs> to answer. <laughs> Need no. to find money. <laughs> Need to, as always, additional studies are called for, additional funding is called for, and the grants are being written. Yes. Well, I understand that it's not just a love of uh, excreta that has drawn you two together, but that instead, both of you are hockey crazy. Indeed. Tell us about that aspect of you. We've already heard quite enough about Mark. <laughs> Tell us about your career as a, as a, as a hockey woman. Yes, yeah, so my career as a hockey woman uh, started when I was eight years old. And then um, I started at a local hockey club in our village. And then by the time I wanted to try to um, uh, compete a little bit more, so I made a switch to another hockey club in The Hague, mm -hmm. which is a bigger city. And that's the same club as Mark played for. So we uh, shared the love for hockey club. That same hockey wonderful. club. At this point, <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know if we could have ever again have such a successful um, dual act, but I've certainly enjoyed it. Now, at this point in the conversation, we generally ask those being interviewed to contribute 
something that speaks to them, something that's uh, a bit characteristic of where they come from and their issues. And I fully anticipate that this hockey club has a song. Well, yes. It, indeed, the hockey club has a song, <laughs> but, but, but I think we yeah. go for a different song, Mark. You, you want to hear the... No, 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 that's just fine. Thank you very much. What is this other song? This other song is about actually trying to make the most out of your life and celebrate life. So we do. And what's the title of the song? Live. Live. And in Dutch? Live. Live. Okay, folks, live and be transplanted. Op een vrijdag in de kroeg, ergens in Amsterdam, zat aan de bar met een glas een oude wijze man. Hij zei dat hij nog maar een paar dagen had. Dus pak het leven, pak alles en ga ermee op pad. En hij zei. Leef, alsof het je laatste dag is. Leef, alsof de morgen niet bestaat. Leef, alsof het nooit echt af is. Leef, pak alles wat je kan en ga. Dat hij zich had gewerkt in het zweet, geld verdiend als water, maar nooit echt had geleefd. Zijn vrouw was bij hem weg voor een If you would like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our Espigan playlist. Well, that was just great. Thanks for recommending that song. I've really enjoyed our moments together and uh, Clara. Not so much you, Mark, but Clara, we really look forward to having you back. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bedankt. <laughs> Bedankt.